Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program, what is the impact of these high food prices this Thanksgiving holiday? And think about this, especially since one in six Americans are unable to access healthy foods. We'll talk all about that. Plus, a city of Atlanta proposed resolution is really directed toward subsidized residential housing developers. It would require these developers to accept housing vouchers. So we'll talk all about that as well. Important community conversations. But first this, Georgia Democrats are suing the state of Georgia, specifically the Democratic Party of Georgia, and they're joining the Warnock campaign and the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee in challenging Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger's decision to not allow early voting the Saturday following Thanksgiving. Now, Raffensperger says his interpretation of state law blocks early voting that day due to it falling within two days of a holiday. Of course, that would include Thanksgiving and a state holiday honoring Confederate General Robert E. Lee, which was really just changed to a state holiday. Do what you want with that. But the lawsuit alleges those rules only apply to regularly scheduled elections and not runoffs. Now, we did get a statement from the Democratic Party of Georgia Executive Director Rebecca DeHart. She says Raffensperger's order is concerning and, quote, clearly contradicts Georgia law, close quote. Now, in a statement from Raffensperger, it says, quote, if recent elections prove one thing, it's that voters expect candidates to focus on winning at the ballot box, not at the courthouse. It goes on to say Senator Warnock and his Democratic Party allies are seeking to change Georgia law right before an election based on their political preferences. Instead of muddying the water and pressuring counties to ignore Georgia law, Senator Warnock should be allowing county election officials to continue preparations for the upcoming runoff, close quote. And we'll keep an eye on all of this. In other news, pediatric hospitals across Georgia are coordinating to handle an influx of patients with RSV. The respiratory virus has surged for weeks nationwide now, and it's left Georgia Children's Hospitals full, as we hear from Jess Mador. The respiratory syncytial virus, or RSV, usually clears up in a week or two. Babies are particularly vulnerable to severe infection, including pneumonia. An Atlanta pediatric ear, nose, and throat specialist, Dr. Stephen Gowdy, says infants typically can't breathe through their mouths. And so if they can't breathe through their nose because they really have lots of mucus and they can't breathe that well, they can't eat, they get dehydrated, they get admitted to the hospital. Gowdy says hospitals in Georgia and nearby states are coordinating to make sure RSV patients can get a bed as quickly as possible. To prevent RSV, infectious disease experts recommend staying home when you're sick, frequent disinfecting of surfaces, and hand washing. Jess Mador, WABE News. Georgia Governor Brian Kemp is reportedly testifying today before the Fulton County Special Grand Jury that's tapped with discovering if evidence reveals whether former President Donald Trump and his allies tried to interfere with Georgia's 2020 presidential results. Now, as reported by the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, prosecutors are inter- interested in contacts between Kemp, Trump, and Trump associates. In other political news, State House Majority Leader John Burns is set to become the next Speaker of the Georgia House, as we talked about yesterday. WABE politics reporter Raul Bali says Burns will follow Speaker David Ralston, who's stepping down, as we told you, from leadership because of undisclosed health issues. Speaker Ralston was very much in the mind of John Burns, both personally and politically. I want to acknowledge that I stand here today to carry on the steady leadership and positive, positive vision of my friend, Speaker David Ralston. I join with all Georgians in continuing to send him and his wife, Cherie, our prayers for his health. 
The Speaker has the power to stop any legislation or single-handedly push legislation forward like Ralston did earlier this year with mental health care services reform. Burns says he also wants to continue working across the aisle along with working closely with the state Senate and the governor. Burns will be replaced as majority leader by Gwinnett County State Representative Chuck F. Stration. Republicans in the state house do face the challenge of working with their smallest majority since 2005 when the GOP first took over the chamber. Raul Bally, WABE News, the state capitol. In terms of that runoff, Democrats and Republicans are looking for other ways now to energize voters now that Georgia's U.S. Senate runoff will no longer decide the balance of power in that chamber. As we hear from Susanna Capaluto, she reports that the difficulty might be to get people to show up one more time on December 6th. Historically, there's a big voter drop-off in Georgia runoffs, and this one happens between the busy Thanksgiving and Christmas seasons. And Democrats will keep control regardless of whether Raphael Warnock or Herschel Walker wins. UGA political scientist Charles Bullock says this reality is not helping Walker with college-educated suburban voters. For those Republican voters who were cross-pressured, who had concerns about voting for Herschel Walker but wanted to see Republicans take control of the Senate, they may simply not bother to show up and vote now. Some Republicans and Democrats are making the pitch that there's still power in that extra Senate seat for their party because it could block or help legislation and decide committee assignments. But Bullock says average voters may not care much. If you get 51 votes, then you don't have to worry about what Joe Manchin's going to do. Sure, it makes it easier. But that's kind of inside baseball you know, for most voters. Other than reporters and political scientists, who cares about that? And Bullock says there will be a lot less media attention and money flowing into Georgia without the battle for the balance of power in the Senate. So both parties will have a harder time getting their voters back to the ballot box. Susanna Capaluto, WABE News. And finally. The pitch. Fly ball headed for the gap in left center. At the track, at the wall, leaping try, it's gone! That was back on June 13th when Braves rookie Michael Harris II hit his first big league home run. Now, Michael Harris II is the National League Rookie of the Year. Just 21 years old, he finished averaging with a batting average of 297 and hit 19 home runs with the Braves. It was kind of surprising to just hear my name after, I mean, coming up kind of middle of the season and you know, just trying to, trying to do what I can to help the team win. But, yeah, I didn't really expect this. Uh, beginning of the year. I mean, when I came up, I just tried to come up and do my job and then uh, to end the season and, I mean, get this award, it means a lot. And how about this, Harris, along with another Braves rookie, Spencer Strider, they were the top two vote-getters. Congratulations. This is Closer Look. We're back in a moment. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues here on 90.1 WABE from Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Food hunger continues to be an ongoing issue, not just here in Georgia, but nationwide, as you know. Now, we know that data gathered by Feeding America suggests that there are more than one million people in Georgia facing hunger. Now, to put that in perspective, that's about one in nine people and one in six children. In September, the Biden-Harris administration hosted the White House Conference on Hunger, Nutrition and Health. A major focus was ending food hunger. Now, here's Democratic Representative James McGovern of Massachusetts talking to MSNBC. He was responding to a question that said why food insecurity is an ongoing crisis for a rich nation like the U.S. Well, that's a very good question. Uh, But hunger uh, is a political condition. Uh, We have the resources, we have the food, we have the infrastructure, we have everything to end it, but we've lacked the political will. 
part of the challenge is that uh, the answer to ending hunger doesn't fall neatly under one department or agency or under one congressional committee. Uh, th th this topic intersects with a whole bunch of other issues. Right. Hmm. Nationally, as an inflation continues to rise, research suggests, suggests that also one in six people will not have access to healthy food this Thanksgiving because they simply can't afford it. Joining me now to talk more about food insecurity, the nutrition gap, and what's being done to combat it is Nancy Roman, the president and CEO of the Partnership for a Healthy America. Ms. Roman, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Rose. Delighted to be here. You know, although we know that the annual inflation rate now for the U.S., it did dip slightly to just 7.7 percent ending October. But listen, we know it, it was rising 8.2 percent previously. Still, food prices are high. So I'm asking mm -hmm. you to begin our conversation when you reflect about we're obviously in another holiday season. So many households, millions of households are deemed food insecure. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I, I was glad you began the program with Jim McGovern, and he's right. Um, it's a fixable problem, but we lack the political will. It's always challenging. Hunger is derivative of poverty. And if you're a nation that tolerates poverty, you'll have to face hunger and food insecurity. And with food prices rising, and I think every single American in the country has experienced what that looks like in the grocery store, um, it's even harder than it was a year ago today. Well, when you hear Congressman McGovern say, look, it is a political condition, again, quote, that we have the resources to end it, but lack the political will. Here we are in 2022. Someone listening says, well, then what is the issue? Because clearly we would think that both major political parties would want to end food insecurity and hunger. What's the problem here? Yeah, I think the problem, it has not been a national priority. You're right to note that nobody's against ending hunger, right? No, but nobody, Republican, Democrat, independent, tall, short, man, woman, you know, wants people to be hungry. But it's an issue of how much time, energy, and political capital you're willing to put towards fixing it. And frankly, to confronting the fact that some of the tools that we have to address hunger really have not been adequate. Um, we've tried to end hunger through SNAP, which I very much support, but just expanding, expanding, expanding SNAP, it's been inadequate. There are some ideas about making it more effective by adding additional benefits for produce and fruits and vegetables. Um, we've tried to fix it through a network of 202 food banks nationwide, but they're supplied with leftover groceries that are often ultra processed carbohydrates mm -hmm. and sugary snacks. So part of it is the current system is inadequate. And the other problem is we, we want the private sector to begin providing more affordable access to underserved communities. But we haven't been intellectually honest in acknowledging the economics that people who have tried have not been able to make money doing it. So we have this gap. You know, we have um, important but insufficient government programs, important but imperfect food banks, mm -hmm. and then a private sector that hasn't made the economics work out. We need someone to um, challenge us to do something differently. You know, it's interesting because after your segment, we're going to talk about a program here that might subsidize those, those housing developers that get subsidies in order to allow for housing vouchers. I'm curious, is there some type of program you think that could be implemented for these grocery stores? If they could, and I know folks are going to send me emails, I'm not saying be subsidized. I'm talking about some type of program because there are so many neighborhoods in Atlanta, I've been here for a long time now, that still do not have a grocery yeah. store. And if there's I, I some way to get the and grocery and the, the big grocers would tell you, you know this. Well, we have these metrics that we use when we decide to come into a neighborhood. Yeah. You know, I think you're on the right track. Listen, you know, I, I often joke that I, I'm a raging capitalist. But, you know, there are areas where we have government we have government support and health care through Medicare and Medicaid. And 50 years later, we still don't have healthy food in the lowest income neighborhoods that are most in need, many of them communities of color. And there should be 
startup capital for grocery stores, there should be some kind of tax incentives mm -hmm. and subsidies for um, helping to make um, these you know, models be able to succeed in different communities. And frankly, we at PHA are doing work, innovating and experimenting with entrepreneurs. Um, you know, when the pandemic hit, we saw two bright spots in an otherwise um, anything but bright situation. And that was that you had underserved communities coming online and you had grocery stores that had never been willing to deliver to some um, of, of underserved areas now willing to do it. And those shifts have not been fully leveraged. And we think there's some potential for innovation as well. When we talk about and, and I think uh, the, the congressman mentioned this, too, in another clip that he talked about. It, it takes nonprofit. It takes corporate. It takes public and private partnerships. And, and if I had a dollar for every time somebody came on this program and said, it's going to take public and private partnerships, you have a whole lot of money. Um, in that sense, someone, an organization like yours, how, how, what are those partnerships that have been working for you all? Or, and what are those partnerships that you wish you had that were stronger? <laughs> Yeah, well, I'll tell you, we have so many different kinds of partnerships, but there's a couple in particular that I'm excited about. One, we have just partnered with Instacart. Um, we have a program where we deliver fruits and vegetables for 12 successive weeks, a saturation model that a family gets a serving for everyone in the household, two meals a day, seven days a week for 12 weeks. Why that much? Because there's data showing that when you when you provide produce over that period of time, you actually develop a healthy habit of produce. Um, <clears throat> but some people found it challenging to pick up the produce, and now we're partnering with Instacart, where they'll people will be able to choose the produce they want and have it delivered right to their door, and the delivery will be subsidized and free. But you know we've got to really shift the culture because. Um, People have to get exposed to delicious, high-quality produce to realize mm -hmm. they love it. Mm -hmm. If the only produce you've ever had has been produce on its last legs coming out of a food bank where if you don't eat it in 10 minutes, it's shot, mm -hmm. you're not going to have the same joy of experience if you've been buying your produce in Whole Foods. What is the role that, and I know here in, in Georgia, I know other states have it, where we, we always are touting Georgia grown and, you know, you know from, from here, from the farm to the table right here in Georgia. Can yeah. we see more initiatives where states themselves are really focusing on getting Georgia grown products, maybe somehow incentivizing food, uh, what we our, our markets? you know, to be in these neighborhoods. It, there seems like there has to be other avenues besides if we can't get that grocery store. Maybe we do need, a, you know, yeah. a market. Yeah, I like where you're going. I mean, we're doing some very interesting work in the Mississippi Delta where we're working with local farmers to get locally grown produce into the community. Um, <clears throat> just to be really intellectually honest and transparent about the challenges is, You've got two super important goals at odds with one another. One, you have farmers that want a living wage mm -hmm. and fair prices, and that can sometimes be in conflict with the consumer that wants the lowest prices possible. Sure. Um, so, you know, it's not simple. You know, I wouldn't want to sugarcoat it, but mm -hmm. that's why I believe we need innovation. And to go back to your point about public-private partnerships, I think if the government would offer more tax incentives, there are tax breaks for all sorts of things. I mean, trust me, we're giving tax incentives to many, many, many things. Why not incentivize innovative approaches to bringing food to communities that lack it? It's in our interest, not just because we care about the people, but because we want to turn the clock around on diet-related disease. You know, right now, we have one in two people, as Cory Booker points out, that have diabetes, heart disease, or some other diet-related disease that they don't need to have. Mm -hmm. This quality of life issue for Americans, and we need to prioritize it at every level, federal, state, and local. So what partners, What who up in Washington, and I know right now they're not getting along because they haven't been getting along for a while, but do you have support? In Washington to help you. I mean, I mentioned the Biden-Harris yeah. administration had it had uh, been fifty years since they had this summit. You know, do y'all well, pay attention I, to that? What comes out of this? I mean, it's nice yeah. to say we're having a summit, but if nothing comes out of it, no actionable outcome, you and I are just going to have this conversation again next year. 
Yeah. Well, first of all, I have to apply, applaud the Biden administration for having it. I mean, people in my field have been urging various administrations of both political persuasions to do this. And the Biden administration under Susan Rice finally did decide to prioritize the issue. Um, and, you know, it's a short time left in this administration to try to make headway against some of the goals. One of the reasons I think you saw many of the goals in the White House strategy be opting in, urging companies to opt in to front of pack labeling, to opt in to lowering sodium in the food supply, is because there really isn't time to get a lot of things driven into law in the next 18 months. But we had to start the conversation. And as someone who's been at this for a long time, I do sense momentum now mm -hmm. that we didn't have previously. And um, the longest march begins with a single step. We have to keep yeah. keep walking. What are you all doing, Partnership for Healthy America? What initiatives do you all have this holiday season to help families? Well, we, we have several, really too many for me to list, but I think the one I would call attention to because individuals can contribute to it is our Good Food for All program. And that's the one I mentioned where we provide produce through a saturation model. And we developed that program that way during the pandemic because we thought, gosh, one of our complaints is that um, in a lot of hunger work, the program ends, the money dries up, the food goes away, and people are right back to where they started. But this program has been designed that at the end of it, you have a demand for produce, an appreciation of produce, and a desire for produce. And that's what the private sector is looking for to come into the community and offer produce. So we've done a lot of work capturing the data demonstrating that people want produce, what kind they want, and what they're willing to pay for it. Um, and, and that is powerful information to the market that wants to begin serving the need because we've got to do things differently. You know, when you say that, I've heard people talk about that. We've got to do things differently. And we've, again, here we are upon a, a holiday season. And once, you know, we're asking folks, I mean, it's, it's the season of giving, right? We, we, we right. say this, we've been saying this for, for decades now. The Congressman mentioned, you know, this is a fixable pro problem. Is this where we start? It's a problem that we can legislate ourselves out of, but that takes time, as you just said. You know, we don't know what what can get done in the next eighteen months. So, in the meantime, what do what, what would you suggest states, if you could, if you had to give states, you know, a little play by play, what would you tell them to start looking at? Because if we head into a recession, as some say, you know, I'm going to have more conversations like this. Mm -hmm. Well, I think, you know, you hit on a couple of the things, you know, when you talked about, you know, really beginning states are beginning to think about local food markets, local food markets and regional food markets will never, ever be the full, you know, um, answer. People aren't going to give up eating blueberries in the wintertime, but they need to be a piece of the solution to um, I think you're seeing creative governments at the city level, and we're partnering with Denver and Indianapolis to double consumption of fruits and vegetables. A lot of this just requires leadership. Mm -hmm. You get big mayors of big cities to say, look, we are going to set a, a municipal goal that we double consumption at every level, seniors, children mm -hmm. across the board of fruits and vegetables. We know, frankly, that's one of the few things about healthy eating that's not controversial. <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah, one of the few things. And I actually have a question from a listener who says, going back to the question about the farmers' rows, could there be more incentives for farmers to help subsidize the cost for them in order to, to provide food to these neighborhoods? It's a good question. Yeah, it is a good question. You know, I do. I have long believed that the government needs to create the enabling environment. You know, the private sector is ultimately going to have to solve this. You know, farmers food merchants, vendors, we're a capitalist country and the private sector is gonna bring a big piece of the answer, but government can do much more to create the enabling environment. Um, they can make it more attractive to invest in this space. Um, you know, I, I think um, it is a solvable problem and if government wouldn't have incentives for farmers, incentives for food merchants, Incentives that are really um, have as an ultimate outcome the public health. What could be more noble or, frankly, more bipartisan? 
And finally, is there a timeline? And, it, and I, I hate, sometimes I, I hate asking these questions, but I always like to end with some optimism. Is there a timeline that you look at to say, you know what, by this year we should be able to, and I want to use this word, eradicate uh, food insecure communities in this nation? Well, I am an optimist, so I will say something optimistic, but I go back to, you know, we have had poverty since biblical times. Mm -hmm. It's hard to eradicate poverty. And I think sometimes we get ourselves into a box by saying we're going to end hunger, which means that no one will ever be without the resources they need to secure food, which is a tough bar. I think it's better to be optimistic about it is not unrealistic to say that people in every single zip code in the United States should be able to access food. There should be food. It should be at affordable prices. It should be fresh. It should be beautiful. It should be available. Government should enable that to happen. Investment should flow into private sector companies that are working to make that happen. That can happen. And let, let's hope that there aren't too many people without the resources to secure that food when that moment comes. Nancy Roman, the president and CEO of Partnership for a Healthy America. And we've been talking about food insecurity and the, the nutrition gap and what's being done to combat it. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you so much for what your organization and so many other organizations do, not only here in Georgia, but throughout the nation to help folks. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Rose. And you're listening to Closer Look from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Now, hold on. If I tell you, quote, average rents remain flat at $1,718 well, $1, for the second straight month. Keep in mind, I'm not talking about Atlanta. That's a national average, according to multi-housing news. Now, based on U.S. Census information, understand this. About 31% of white American households were renting their homes in 2019 compared to 59% of black American households and 53% of Hispanic households. Now, I got some more numbers for you. Black American households also account for 20% of renter occupied housing units, despite making up just 8% of households overall. And we're telling you this for a reason, so hang with me. Now, back to Atlanta and the average monthly rent. It is above 1900 Don't email me, it's not my fault. As part of Closer Look and WAB's ongoing coverage of Atlanta's housing crisis today, we're going to take a deeper dive into housing vouchers. It's a City of Atlanta proposed resolution directed toward subsidized residential housing developments, and it would require those developers to accept housing vouchers. There's a lot to talk about, so join me now with more is Councilmember Liliana Bakhtiari. Welcome. Appreciate you taking the time. Thank you, Rose, for giving it to me. I appreciate it. I want to go back to my conversation I had with Mayor Andre Dickens not too long ago, and we talked about housing vouchers. Take a listen. What about something that does not deny someone housing because they have a voucher? Yeah, we can't do I mean, in my opinion, that's something that I think we've already uh, resolved. And now it's more of a compliance issue uh, because I remember as a city council, we were working on fair housing um, uh, requirements and making sure that uh, landlords were taking these vouchers. And so now there's an enforcement mechanism that we really need to make sure we build up, because I believe that if you have a voucher that somebody is going to pay the difference in your rent. I mean, like there's there, there's rent in Midtown that's twenty three hundred dollars, and if you got a family of two or three, and you can only pay seven hundred of that, the federal government is going to pay the other sixteen hundred dollars. That 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 Midtown high rise needs to take that rent. They need to take that voucher, and if they're not, then they then we need to do something about that. All right. So you heard uh, Mayor Dickens say we need to do something about it. Let's back up a little bit. I think folks listening say when we talk about housing vouchers. Let's explain that. We're talking about folks who receive vouchers through the Atlanta Authority, right? Yes. So when we're talking about housing vouchers, you know, you're you're talking about the fact that in the city of Atlanta currently, uh, we typically talk about the tipping point for being in a renter's crisis somewhere in the 30 percentile. Mm -hmm. um, if you factor in rent along with transportation, renters are paying over 50 percent of their income. 
And that is well past the tipping point of a crisis. And we, as we saw with recent numbers, that a majority of the people living in Atlanta are renters, not homeowners. Mm-hmm. And so when we talk about housing vouchers, we're talking about a government-backed rent payment that people should be able to use to pay their rent. And the issue that we're now seeing is that not only do, is it a long list, but we have for-profit, we have developers coming in buying up formerly affordable properties or properties that may have had a housing voucher program and disc- buying that property, then discontinuing that program and evicting those individuals. Let's back up a moment. Why do you think, this is through your personal view, that there is reluctant to take housing vouchers or to accept there's them? A stigma. I would say there's a stigma around poverty. I would say that there's this stigma whether or not we realize that, I mean, Everyone innately has a prejudice. Um, it's unfortunately around us in the world that we are exposed to. I think that one of the things that we've consistently seen is that poverty is stigmatized. When we talk about affordability, oftentimes poverty is segregated. It's dumped into one district rather than being equitably done across the city. Um, you don't see a lot of mixed income communities, which frankly is absolutely vital to a healthy, successful economy and a healthy, successful community. Um, I think that there is... So I, I think that there is a lot of prejudice around that. And our role as council is to remove the stigma that exists around housing vouchers and around poverty. Because if you continue to perpetuate that cycle of oppression by removing resources and opportunities for people who are low income, then that's just going to continue to be the stigma. We're creating we're creating that issue and then further punishing the people that are suffering from it. And also in terms of who people think might be unsheltered or who need housing Correct. assistance. You have shared your personal story around housing. Mm-hmm. Did you? I, I, I experienced a lot of housing insecurity and instability. Um, I wasn't able to pay for dormitories at Georgia State when I went to college. I came to Georgia, I came to the city living in a car, living on sofas, depending on community to take care of me. Um, experience with different shelters. It. I, I because of that I experienced a lot of trauma, assault, mugging, you name it. Um, and my intention in being a council member and having this, the privilege of this platform is to always represent our most under-resourced and underrepresented communities. And the fact now is that we have a, over 20,000, over 20,000 families and individuals with that have, mm-hmm. that are in need of housing assistance and have housing choice vouchers that have nowhere to go. And so there's, you know, we need to have more opportunities within the city. This legislation and requiring those subsidy dollars and those grants, et cetera, that come from the city, that come from Atlanta Housing Authority, Beltline, Invest, MARTA, um, Fulton County Development Authority and AHA, that this is going to require that those individuals register with, with Atlanta Housing Authority and accept housing vouchers, which means that'll be spread throughout the city, okay, not just focused to one area. Okay, let's back up so folks understand. When we're talk, you're talking about developers, you're talking yes. about, let's just get this cleared. Uh, sure. Someone wants to build some development around MARTA. Mm-hmm. Okay. This is a, a, a private investor for residential housing. Correct. Uh, are you, would this resolution say, hey, we would like for you to make a certain percentage or the entire for, for application process? Break this down. How would this work? So just real quickly, for folks who ask things about rent control and other things in the city, we are preempted by the state, right? So the state specifically does not allow city of Atlanta to require people to accept vouchers. So what we had to do, what I had to do along with people like Josh, and this was a huge, this is where the administration really came in clutch. Josh Humphreys and Courtney English were really helpful on this. We reached out to each of these development agencies. We cannot place requirements on invest or Fulton County development authority or Beltline or any of these other state developed, state developed, uh, agencies. We had to ask, will you do this with us? So it's a resolution, not an ordinance. Right. So I went and got public buy-in from Beltline, from MARTA, from Atlanta Housing Authority, from Fulton County Development Authority and Invest to say that anyone who came to them for dollars to create residential units would have to register with Atlanta Housing Authority and accept housing vouchers. We did not put a percentage on this yet. The point was to give us a start. It's a huge, huge win mm-hmm. that we have public buy-in from each of these agencies to adopt this resolution. Well, having and, having Atlanta Beltline and mm-hmm. especially MARTA sounds like it's key because obviously development around their entities is booming 
as, as right. we know. Um, did you have any, obviously you didn't have any difficulty in getting them to sign on to this? Well, I make sure to have lots of meetings before my legislation gets to the floor. So we had, I mean, you're talking about 20, 30 meetings before this actually reached the floor, making sure we had buy-in and making sure that we even met with um, the apartment association on all these different agencies to make sure we were all together on this, worked with our legal office, worked with the administration. I got sign on from uh, 13 of my colleagues. Mm -hmm. So oh, 13 of us signed on to this. So 12 other colleagues as well. So this, this, this went through with a lot of thought and a lot of intentionality and got buy-in behind the scenes before I introduced it. In those 30 meetings that you had that you just talked about, can you, t can you reveal some of the concerns or challenges that you all had to work through to make sure that before it got to the floor for vote, that everything would be made clear. There would be no fuzzy or gray areas here. I mean, yes. So one of the things was we had to make sure that we were within the legal, that we weren't violating anything legally, mm -hmm. that we made sure that we were within the legal bounds with the preemptions of the state and with our legal department. Um, and then we had to, we had to see what everyone was comfortable with. I, I aimed really high first with the percentage before we worked it down and got buy-in from everyone. Mm -hmm. um, basically, the concern was that, you know, a lot of folks, uh, try. The, there's fear that this would also interfere with other subsidies that might have been in place. So we made it so that this did not, anybody who was already getting subsidy dollars or any type of assistance, this would not apply to them. Um, so we made sure that there was no overlap, that there were no conflicts with already with other intentions that were put into place, that this was not going to affect our current code. So we went through a pretty stringent process of meeting and speaking with everyone, allowing people to make their edits, address their concerns. But the probably the most inspiring piece of this, because a lot of people are saying, you know, there were some folks that were pretty cynical about it and saying that they were that these agencies were just doing it to meet their bottom line. I would say that's wholly incorrect. These each of the heads of these agencies recognize that there is an issue with affordability and with additional housing opportunities for people that are dependent upon housing vouchers and removing that stigma. And so they all they all came in with to this to create a precedent for us creating more support for lower income residents who are dependent on those vouchers. Councilmember Bakhtiari, are there other similar resolutions in other cities that you all modeled this after? Or did you go and look at and see if there was anything that you could add that, that other cities were doing? Mm -hmm. So I actually met with Lindsay Siegel from, from Atlanta Legal Aid, who is an extraordinary human being. Been on um, the program I, before, yes. Yes, Lindsay's amazing. And I said, Lindsay, like, when we met, I was like, give me a list of things that you would like to see the city attempt to improve um, because of her clients and the prejudices they faced and the fact that they were having issues with housing, et cetera. And one of the things that she listed was this, and that was modeled after what Charlotte recently did with a similar, mm -hmm. um, with a similar leg legislative measure, doing the same thing there. And we took for, and, and Lindsay, what Lindsay's ask was, was modeled after what Charlotte had put into place. As you heard, Mayor Andre Dickens is definitely in support of this. What's the next step here? Next step is we have it in front of us between uh, and CDHS today. Then it go, it's dual referred. It also goes to finance tomorrow. I expect it to pass unanimously out of both committees. And then it will come back to full council, hopefully on consent agenda, and be voted through at our next full council this upcoming Monday, and then be signed by the mayor and put into effect immediately after. And so... Again, and I want to make sure we're very clear about this so folks understand this is the, those developers. And a developer doesn't have to agree to this, but if they're getting some type of subsidy, you're saying, look, if you're going to be around, particularly if you're working with these entities that have signed on, mm -hmm. you should just miles, go ahead and do it. Just, you know, you're not bullying them or yeah. making them. But no. The thing is, and also like what people have to understand is that this also allows landlords to have a larger pool of renters. This, these are not individuals that you're going to have to worry about not having rent from one month to the next because, again, it is a government-backed payment. Mm -hmm. Those dollars are guaranteed to be there. And so they're, pays, they're making sure that no renter pays above 30% of their income towards this, no, no more than 30% of their income towards rent. The intention of this is to find a balance between subsidies and making sure that landlords do get paid. So there, to me, it's a win-win. I think there's just a lot of fear around... Like I said, a lot of fear and stigma around um, around poverty and livability. And this resolution with the buy-in from all these agencies is going to be a step in breaking that and changing that stigma and that belief. 
aside from this, though, what role mm-hmm. can you all play if you have folks that say, well, look, you know, how can, yeah, you're telling me that this is a win-win situation, but if you're trying to change somebody's mindset, it, it reminds me of going back to MARTA when we talked about who rides public transportation. You know, right. people, you have to change people's mindset, but it, is this the start, you think? Does this, does this really help? I think this is going to really help with the backlog that we have. It's not, it's by no means everything that we can do. This is one small step in a direction of creating a culture that's going to provide more support for low-income residents, but it takes a diversity of tactic. It's not just this. We're going to have to look at, we're going to have to look at density. We're going to have to look at, um, at decreasing energy burden. Atlanta is in the top five cities for worst energy burden in the country. And what that means is you have people that will forego going to a doctor's appointment or eating pay a utility bill so we're we're we have the worst we have we're in the top five for worst energy burden in the country so that's something that we can begin to tackle we can take a look at making sure we have alternative transit options and actually expanding that making Mm -hmm. sure we're less car dependent city um doing more to provide more work opportunities stop stop robbing people of an opportunity if they are convicts and they're trying to come out of they're trying to come out of that situation and build a life for themselves, provide more workforce opportunities. I'm next Monday. I'm going to be introducing. Uh, I'm going to be working on introducing a um, apprenticeship program that's going to require for there to be more apprenticeships and not allow us to misclassify workers. And, and so that they we're actually fighting to provide health benefits for anybody who's contracted with the city, um, because right now we have a misclassification issue where people are being 1099 instead of being given a W two. There's mm-hmm. so many things that the city can do. And there's so many brilliant partners in the city that come to us with these legislative ideas that we can carry forward. Also, going back to Mayor Andre Dickens talking about, look, the city has a plan, a, a plan to build or preserve these 20,000 units of affordable housing. Mm-hmm. Does this factor into that 20,000 units or is this an addition to you think? Where does this fall into the that plan? My hope is that this is going to be. In addition to, I mean, the mayor has his idea of where he wants to build his affordable housing, which is great. I think this builds in addition to, and I think this also will factor in, um, will help will help us begin to pull supportive housing more into the conversation because sixty percent AMI is now a totally different store is a totally different number than it was mm-hmm. even five years ago. So I'm talking about supportive housing. I'm talking about this is going to give us the opportunity to also look at city employee housing you see apf doing it for for officers mm-hmm. we let, let's talk about creating a model for city employees because most of our watershed employees public work employees etc are driving in an hour to work in the city and they should be able to live in the city that they work in but with rising rents and housing mm-hmm. costs you know even if someone has a voucher for let's say thirteen hundred dollars you just heard what i said about the and particularly right. if you're a, a a larger household you know average rent is nineteen hundred dollars Nineteen hundred dollars is the average rent here in Atlanta. And again, I know folks are tired of me saying it, but I remember my rent was five hundred forty-five dollars. I know that was in nineteen ninety-six, but just think I remember about when it. my rent was four hundred and thirty dollars. So oh yeah. goodness, where were you living? Uh, right off of Moreland and Edgewood. Really, neighbors. I was mm-hmm. right off Beaufort Highway. So, you know, is this? Someone may say, well, this makes a small dent, but considering that rents are going to just keep increasing, increasing, you know, you're going to get to this problem again. You know, how do you solve? Right. So what do you say to that? So we look at housing and rent. We don't look at housing and payment for housing in such a limited view because there are so many other ways to also offset costs. It's not the rent that's the only thing that's high. It's cost of food. Yeah. It's cost of transportation. It's cost of utilities. So we have to get innovative and creative because the market's going to continue to be the market. It's 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 a we have to fight back against that tsunami wave that's coming in to wipe out and liquidate all the culture of the city. We do that by looking at tons of different options where right now I'm working with the land trust um, with Amanda Ryan to take a look at how we can assist seniors. We're, we're, we're working with neighbor in need on this, how we can anybody who's on their last leg with payment, mm-hmm. we can come in buy the buy their land, pay them the market value for that, let them keep ownership of their house and find out how we can. We're working out kinks in that. There's there's also opportunities of educating people on farming in their own backyards. There's other transportation opportunities that we can put into place, mm-hmm. um, wave and rideshare, like wave programs and cutting the cost on Lyft and Uber. There's tons of innovative ideas. And people will say that this doesn't cut to the core issue. They're right about that. But we have to be really innovative and creative about how we tackle these solutions and offset those additional costs because we're preempted by the state on so many things. 
And I have a, a question from from a listener council member who wants to just want some clarity. This is for federal program. This is the Section Eight program we're talking about. That's what they call it. Is that or is that Correct. different from yeah. the voucher? That's Section, the same program, right? Section Eight. Correct. So, and I'm gonna I'm gonna read to you real quickly one of the um, whereas clauses in here because sure. it's not. Just, it says the financial incentive subject to these requests shall include, but will not be limited to. Taxes, tax exempt bond financing, housing opportunity bond financing, tax allocation district financing, grant funding, loans, and lease purchase bonds or similar property tax incentives. So it's it's we're talking about a breadth of funding okay. opportunities here. Yeah. I, I want to get your thoughts on this because this is it plays into the whole all of this. And that is the recent it was an AJC today with Wellstar saying that they had just sort of had a, an assessment of the property uh, your thoughts on all of that um as they're saying to, that they had an assessment of the property in, in say, of, of their current property of, of they the were seeking yeah so okay i want to be fair so wellstar was seeking the property valuation prior to the closure mm-hmm. in, in terms of that building over there off of boulevard is that does that concern you at all that they were seeking out the cost of what that property was before they sold it or before they closed the before they closed the hospital, it made the announcement. Yes. The, how do I feel about that? Do you have a comment? I mean, I think I do think it's been argued that by Wellstar and other individuals that the building and the cost of updating the hospital systems was so high that they could not possibly do it. Um, I would argue that Wellstar bought, bought these properties knowing full well that reality. And what they could have done, if the true if the true motive behind Wellstar, the nonprofit that they are, the true motivation behind them is to actually help people in need and help provide health care to all people, religious of background, creed, finance, status, et cetera, then they would have been honest from the get-go. This was not a surprise to them. This was a planned out motive. They bought five hospitals. They shut two down in Fulton County that in South Fulton that were going to help, that would predominantly help people of color and people in low-income status. They kept the three open in North Fulton that helped predominantly white communities. So my my response to that is knowing that, knowing the need and the desire for that, that hospital there and how many people it helped, understanding, yes, that it was expensive. It, the, the cost was too high to to reevaluate that they could have worked with different partners. They could have done, there was millions of options on the table to have done health and human services center, sell off a portion of, of the property, keep the rest of it and dedicate it to helping the community. There are plenty of partners willing to step in and take on that responsibility. There was infinite ways to go about this in a way that would have worked with the community, worked with other partners and other agencies, the state, the city, the county, that could have still worked in a way that benefited the community and still made sure that there were health and health opportunities there for people who are seeking that while still at their bottom line was profit while still making some sort of profit, but shutting it down and selling it to the highest bidder. Absolutely not without communicating with the city. Absolutely not. Still not going to, still not going to change my mind on that one. Well, I understand. Uh, any more development in terms of the future of this, the, the, the property? I mean, we know there's a moratorium, but you, look, y'all can't hold this up forever. No, not forever. Um, the mayor is leading on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, members of council, you know, we, we've talked about what we would like to see go there. Uh, obviously, the mayor put in that moratorium for the purpose of we for the purpose of if Wellstar did have a buyer lined up, we wanted to hear from the community first. You don't get to just take a 25 acre uh, health facility that has been a, a trauma one facility, one of the few in, in the in the city, if not the state, um, and get to just shut it down with the intention of selling it off to whoever to put luxury housing. No, no. So we're very much following the mayor's lead um, with, you know, cause this is, he, he has expressed his, uh, his dissatisfaction with how Wellstar has handled this. And mm-hmm. I have every faith that he's going to listen to the community and listen to us to put together something that's going to benefit. As we begin levels in some form. I appreciate you giving that statement as we begin to wrap up and look, we all love Atlanta, right? That's why we came here, you know, right. and it is clear with population growth, we're going to have more people coming in. And I've asked this question in terms of, you know, where do you, where do, where do folks want Atlanta to be in, in five years? I've since reduced that to two years because things are moving <laughs> rapidly. Um, what kind of Atlanta do you see in two years in terms of housing affordability for everyone? If we take the path that we've taken over the last couple of decades of allowing change development investment to come into the community unchecked we will continue to see a displacement of the very people who have built atlanta and made it the sellable city that it is today 
Um, we will continue to see the selling off of items that were, you know, we, we love to we love to tout the birthplace of the civil rights movement, but going on to Auburn Avenue and you can see how much people have cared about the birthplace of the civil rights movement. Um, and there's some people that are working to to, to preserve that neighborhood. Um, yeah, absolutely. And I'm and I'm and I and I am one of those folks that is trying to assist the people who have been there for decades mm -hmm. attempting to change that. Um, and I think that we have a mayor and an administration that's dedicated to changing that. So I should be very clear about that. But if left unchecked, that tsunami wave of change will decimate everything in its path. We we have to do everything we can with the preemptions that we have in place, with the fact that we are limited by a free, you know, we have a we have a free market, so we can't we can't put regulations on some entities and not on others. Mm -hmm. um, that's unconstitutional. So we have to be really creative and innovative in how we, like I said, reduce costs on families that have to face. We have we have Georgia Power that's going to increase its rates 45 percent over the next couple of years. Water bills are only going to continue to rise. Um, and we have to make sure that we are doing everything we can to have density on Ontario roads, preserve the affordable housing that's still there, mm -hmm. um, because you have a lot of absentee landlords that are sitting on property that is affordable, but letting it go to waste and becoming a health hazard um, rather than putting it on the market. So that is going to take a level of commitment um being in the community door knocking on off years being being uh making sure that we're listening to everybody in the community and being very accessible and available as i'm trying to be be in mind because this market is changing fast and i have seniors every single day that are being tricked out of their homes i have i have renters every single day that are being evicted i have folks every single day that are having their houses bought their their apartments bought up and being told section eight's not going to be here anymore you got to go so it is going to take a level of commitment that i don't think we've ever seen before because and it's going to be it's going to be very 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 hard and it has to be community driven you're going to have to see council working in tandem with the community it cannot be these siloed conversations Atlanta council member Liliana Bakhtiari thank you so much for taking the time I really appreciate it I had a lot of questions from listeners so I tried to get them all in thank you thank you and if anybody else wants to Rose please feel free to put my information out if anyone wants to follow up with additional questions I want to make sure I am available and accessible for that I won't give them your number, but we'll give them an email. That sounds good. <laughs> Thank you so much. Appreciate it. That's it Appreciate for this edition of Closer Look. Our producers are LaShawn Hudson, Daniel Rezell, and Pat St. Clair. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker. Reminder, let, let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other. Send me an email, as y'all love to do, rose at wabe.org. And if you missed any of today's program, it is online, wabe.org slash Closer Look. And, of course, Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. as well as in our podcast. So subscribe wherever you like because that is free and doesn't cost anything. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.